0: Welcome to the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast. Today's Great Conversation takes us back to the Australian Classics Book Club for May. The Australian Classics Book Club is a monthly exploration of Australian writing, featuring a panel of authors, editors, publishers and critics, and it's a great way to look back and discover forgotten, classic or underappreciated Australian writing. Today's book club features Elena Gugulis, Senior Editor at Text Publishing, and Rosalie Ham, author of books such as The Dressmaker and The Year of the Farmer. And together we're going to be discussing Madeline St. John's A Pure Clear Light. I'm Andrew Popel, and every week I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. Final Draft explores the best of Australia's books, writing, and literary culture. In the Australian Classics Book Club, we get a chance to look back and learn more about this culture and how it influences our reading. Now, the Great Conversations podcast is a way you can hear more of these discussions and dive deeper into the books that you love. Now, if you know someone who loves literature, why not share the podcast with them? Books are always better when they're shared, and together you get to join in the discussion. Maybe start your own book club, and when you hit subscribe, you'll get a new episode every week, as well as a new friend to discuss the books with. Madeleine St. John's a Pure Clear Light is an incisive portrait of a marriage at the moment that it goes haplessly off track. It's 1990s London and St. John invites us into the home of the Beauforts. Simon has recently begun an affair, while Flora is flirting with a return to religion. My name is Andrew Popel and it is that time of the month again where we, we all sit down And read a book. In fact, we read a classic Australian book. It is the Australian Classics Book Club where we delve into greats, forgotten, recovered, amazing works of Australian literature. And as always, I'm joined in the book club by regular listeners of Final Draft, two very familiar voices. Rosalie Hamm is joining us. Now Rosalie is the author of four novels, including The Summer at Mount Hope, There Should Be More Dancing. You, uh, you may recognise her debut novel The Dressmaker because it got a lot of acclaim when it was made into a feature film and you will have also caught Rosalie and I speaking on Final Draft about the Year of the Farmer. Rosalie, thank you for joining us in the book club.
1: It's a pleasure. Thank you, Andrew.
0: And a regular contributor to the book club is Elena Gagoulis. Elena is a senior editor at Text Publishing where you can find today's and more than 100 other Australian classics. Elena, welcome.
2: Hi there, Andrew. Thank you.
0: Now, today we are discussing Madeline St. John's A Pure Clear Light. And after what's well, fairly recent, uh, in the in the last sort of couple of years, adaptation of The Women in Black, I think a lot of people will recognise the name Madeleine St. John. But, Elena, would you do us the honour of, of introducing the author
2: today? Sure. Well, as regular listeners of yours will know, Andrew, uh, Madeleine St. John is almost a patron sage of this podcast now. <laughs> uh, and um, she... This is the, the fourth... Uh, novel of hers to be uh, put into the Text classic series, the fourth one that we've discussed. Um, Madeline was a figure at uh, Sydney University of the same generation as um, Bruce Beresford, Jermaine Greer, Clive James, Robert Hughes, that cohort who left Australia and um, became more famous in London. Uh, she had a, a fairly uh, traumatic early life. Her father was a prominent barrister and politician in Sydney and her mother committed suicide when Madeline was 12 and that uh, had a really catastrophic... Um, effect on the rest of Madeline's life. If you want to read more about Madeline's life, and I recommend you do because it is quite fascinating, try and pick up Helen Trinker's biography, A Life of Madeline St. John, which won the Prime Minister's uh, Literary Award for Nonfiction in 2014. It's a really fascinating insight into a remarkable character. Um, so Madeline St. John, uh, her, she relocated to London in the 90s and she published her first novel in 1993, which was The Women in Black, uh, which went on to be made into a feature film by Bruce Beresford just last year after a very long uh, time trying to make that into a film. She wrote three other novels. Her third novel was The Essence of a Thing, and that was shortlisted for the Man Booker Prize. She was the first Australian woman to uh, receive that honour, and she died in 2006.
0: And today we're discussing A Pure, Clear Light, and I'm going to confess that as I as I tried to compose an introduction to the story of A Pure Clear Light, I kept finding my thoughts were intruded on by my feelings about the book and particularly or at least one of its central characters. So before I start emoting, I just want to acknowledge that this is this is clearly a testament to St. John's writing, particularly her use of dialogue and the way that opens up interior worlds. Just in case that I, I give the impression that I kind of hated anything about the book, I was it was really just the way she made these characters live for me. I'm going to stick on safe ground and use the synopsis from the Text Classics Edition that A Pure Clear Light is an incisive portrait of a marriage at the moment it goes haplessly off track. So we are in London in the 90s and St. John invites us into the home of the Beauforts. Simon has recently begun an affair while Flora is flirting with a return to religion. Now would either of you care to weigh in on that fairly inadequate and, and succinct plot synopsis? Uh, just to get us going? <laughs>
1: um, I'd just like to say that it, it, for me, it was a question about one of them having faith and the other not having faith. And I thought that that was possibly the catalyst for when why their marriage goes haplessly wrong. It's not the mm-hmm. only thing, but I think it's got a lot to do with Simon's lack of faith and Lydia's kind of search for faith. Uh, but they're both searching for faith not with each other. They're searching for beyond um, their friends and family and their marriage.
0: Mm. I definitely saw that search. I want to I want to maybe not disagree but add an addendum uh, mm. to to why things go so wrong. And um, I don't think it's too much of a spoiler to jump right to the end of the book and quote from the much-maligned Lydia or Simon. Simon much-maligns her and her friendship with Flora when she says, ''Men are just pathetic.'' Um, and this was this was after a confrontation scene, and for me, for me, I'm like, well, they're they're in um, they're in, uh, that's in a nutshell the heart of the book, um, Simon. Yeah, well, it is,
1: and the, and he doesn't particularly like Lydia, and because she's got his med- measure, and the irony of and irony to me is one of her big strengths. Um, the irony is that it's Lydia that points out to him all his inadequacies inadequacies and his failings, and she actually causes him. To have a little
0: bit more introspection. You um you also pointed out some parallels in your introduction, Rosalie, uh, between Lydia and Gillian. And I, as I as I was reading through that, I had this moment. And we've we've really kind of jumped a little bit to the end here. But it's it's a sort of book that rewards every single page. Um, I wondered what you thought around this idea that there is this subtle transformation almost of Lydia. We start off, we meet her, she always needs a lift, so Simon has to take her home and he really disdains the neighbourhood and her apartment. And throughout the book there's this transformation that is exemplified by the lounge that she has purchased. And we might, I might just leave that dangling, I know the, th- the t- three of us know what we're talking about. <laughs> In a way has Lydia almost metamorphosed into a, a type of Jillian. Of we we have at the beginning him trying to... Simon's trying to figure out whether she's attractive, and at the end, he's, he's only not attracted to her because of what she has done in his life by exposing him.
1: I see, to me, I don't know if Elena agrees, but to me, that gets back to Simon. Mm. And it's Simon's perception of her. And mm. I think that he changes. Mm. I think that he... Um, doesn't like her but the, somehow the parallels between Lydia and Gillian got, kind of cross over and he sees that it's, because uh, he's a man that's um, preoccupied with the surface of things mm. because he he the, 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 how things present and so he only perceived her as how she presented it wasn't until that he encountered Gillian that he, he saw deeper into that kind of Personality, and I think that she forced him to take her seriously when it was perfectly obvious that she had his measure. I don't know if that's your perception, Elena, or she- no. I
2: agree. I think that um, I think that the telling thing is that he, while Simon doesn't care for Lydia, he also doesn't particularly care for Jillian, who is the person he's having a, an affair with. So I think that really Simon cares most for simon um, and he uh, is is on his own kind of journey and um, really just sees everyone else as, as a bit player in his personal drama
1: yeah While
0: mm. while we're talking then about simon and and actually just the men in the book because I think I think also in your introduction, Rosalie, you make the point that the women are the the most wonderful characters they have depth they they're likable. I, I want to know these people. The men, though, the men in all their supposed power, for me, they were remarkably simple, simple, almost flat as characters. And I decided to bastardize Tolstoy here and suggest that all ambitious men are alike, but their long-suffering partners, are each, they each suffer in their own way. And that's what mm-hmm. we see through through Flora, through Lydia, through Claire, through all of these, through um Louisa, I think also, that they each have these relationships that are defined individually, against men that are kind of interchangeable. I think the only reason Simon looks unique is because we spend so much time with him sometimes.
1: Yeah, I don't know I don't know what that's about. I put it down to. Madeline St. Chin. I just thought it was her attitude and her point of view and I thought she was having a go because she has a go at um, the purpose of writing and the the Australian, of course, at the end of the book too. I think he was an, a, an artist. So I simply put it down to that. But I'm intrigued by your theory and I've, I've got a, more on that.
0: I, I think that if this book came out today... Um we would we would probably maybe a little bit tongue in cheek be talking about how Sinjin is incredibly woke to ideas of male privilege and entitlement because that's that's Simon personified and she really yeah. uh, she really personifies uh, sorry polarizes the genders and I was just struck by some of the really myopic insights that the men have I think it was Simon uh, talking he's he, this is at a point where he and Gillian are getting frustrated at each other. And he he says, Well look, I'm I'm tired, I work hard, don't you know? To which she retorts, Well I work hard, don't you know? And he then he then goes into this sort of really facile introspection and, and says to himself, you couldn't quite get used to the idea that women, the women you desired, the women you dreamed of, the women you make love to, actually worked. And I'm like who who thinks that or says that? That that seems to me like a very, a very sort of old-fashioned and very narrow very entitled view from a man but of course we're going back you know a, a few decades but yeah as i said i think we would now be looking at madeline John as being very woke to ideas of entitlement i'm going to stop using the word woke because it just doesn't mm-hmm. fit <laughs>
2: um i think what yeah, we have here go ahead. with this book is that oh sorry raise lee go ahead
1: no you go ahead please
2: Uh, I was just going to say that I think that this is a book in which the two central characters, Simon and Flora, are both uh, at a turning point. They're both experiencing a crisis, and that's a crisis largely of of the modern condition, that it's a one of uh, what, is, what does it all mean and uh, where, where do we find meaning in life now that the certainties that we took for granted have been taken out from under us. Uh, and it's quite telling the ways in which they respond to that. Simon has an affair with an accountant and uh, Flora turns back to God. Uh, so I think that that in itself is saying something about how uh, Madeline St. John might have thought the, um, the genders responded to existential issues.
1: I think so too and because um, it's Simon that something's missing from um, his whole life and he doesn't actually understand what it is Mm. Um, and he, to my my mind, he goes on a whole life journey and he comes to understand and develop some introspection whereas to me, Flora, she's already a fully formed woman out there in the world that's sort of doing well and raising children and Mm. You know, she's a complex personality, but there's just a minor thing that's missing. There's just something occasionally that comes over her, a deep sadness, um, and she's searching for that. So I think, to my mind, it's Simon's greater journey, if you will. Um, and I kind of thought that was rather nice of Madeleine St. Jin to give him a revelation in the end, because it didn't look like there for a while that she was going to because he... He was just so completely appalling and all the women were getting all the best lines and I thought, well, this is going to end badly. But I was quite pleased with um, the fact that in the end he did get it. He had a revelation, of course, after going to church with her too.
0: I'm definitely. I don't think I'm. I'm going to be as kind to Simon. <laughs> I just. I mean, we we have we have that sort of really beautiful opening introspection with Flora, musing around ideas of rightness and the only mm. thing. I, the only thing I don't find sympathetic about Flora, and this is this is obviously personal, and people have different views around spirituality and religion, but. Um, I, I thought, well, okay, you're, you're looking back to your religious upbringing, and that was something that I thought, well, that's, that's a choice that is being made by a character, but it's not something I relate to particularly. Simon, I didn't see having, he, he, he didn't have any of that depth, which is what you just pointed out, Rosalie, but he also has this bloody-minded reticence around any idea of spiritual commitment, mm-hmm. not just the church or not just the idea of communion. He keeps sort of... Uh, sort of ironically using this word communion to mean the actual act of communion in the church, but just the fact that she has set up this dialogue with with a pastor and with, with a religious identity. But then with Gillian, he has this reticence towards communing with her, saying, I love you, actually articulating some of the feelings that we know he is having, because, of course, we have that point of view into his mind. I... I I couldn't respect him as a character because not only does he do horrible things, but I I don't find his his inner life to be particularly nice either.
1: No, I'd have to agree with you, but I was sort of Mm. a little bit fond of him in a way because I thought that he was quite hopeless. I don't know how you responded to him, Elena, but I didn't dislike him that much. I found him frustrating and annoying, but I kind of
2: felt a little sad for him? I think that I think that Madeleine St. John is certainly um, sympathetic to all of her characters. I don't think she intends any of them to be uh, a kind of a savage, a savaging of a particular type. Um, what they are is a very uh, accurate reflection of um, the milieu in which she existed in the 90s. That was in London and Notting Hill, the kind of creative class as we know them. And I think that there's a kind of... Um, uh, a loving caricature there as well, a kind of, um, uh, because her, her observations are always so acute, they're, always, they're going to seem um, a cutting sometimes, but I, I think that she does feel love for all of her characters, um, mm-hmm. so I think that they are probably too complex to dismiss as, as simple caricatures or, or as, um, you know, irredeemable. Bad people or irredeemably good people—they're um, just they're fully rounded um, people with their, their foibles of of um, the type that we're used to.
0: I think that's why mm. I, I think that's why I hate him so much because he does seem, <laughs> he does seem fully rounded to me. Like he seems like yep. this this man didn't disappear in the nineties. There are still men like this out there, and he suffers for the company he keeps. It wasn't actually until later in the book, and the character of Robert, who Robert almost gets to to, to be a sort of a, a handsome, rich Statler and Waldorf type character, sitting in the in the balcony making comments, and one one comment that Robert makes. Um, the rules about fidelity were made by chaps like me. Like somehow Robert believes that that men exist in a pantheon, making the rules that everyone else just has to accept. And I know Simon, this isn't Simon's thought, but this is the milieu of, of masculinity that Simon sort of moves in. And it, it it just kept poisoning the water for me as I read. Um, yeah, and I think that it has,
1: that's got a lot to do with the timing, um, which we mentioned earlier on, at that time, it was all, attitudes were sort of starting really to turn and men were really copying it to a certain degree, yeah. I think. And I think that's probably where it comes from, that attitude, like her, uh, the attitude of Madeleine St. Jean. I think she's just pointing out things, how men can be, not necessarily that they're all like that. Is yeah. is Robert the one that... Um, I can't quite remember. Does, is he the one that she makes the point about bad writing through?
0: Uh, Robert. Robert is Louisa's husband, I believe, and right. so I think Lydia tells Louisa that she's seen. Ah uh,
2: um, yes.
0: Oh, spoiler alert, listeners! By the way, we're revealing plot <laughs> points. Um, <laughs> and and then Louisa confides to Robert, and Robert is sort of this. He he. he doesn't approve but he also the the whole fidelity comment is like well we just we just accept these things i i i warned that i was going to emote at the beginning of this conversation and i realize i've just turned this into a simon bashing one of the reasons one of the reasons that i feel so strongly is because of the way madeline singen is able to draw these characters out and and in such a sparing way and particularly through their dialogue and We'll we'll get back to the Aussie because his his barely half a page of dialogue is just so unique. But uh, the oh so British way of talking without actually saying anything, everything's unspoken, but it's expected to be. And I love the way Madeline John can turn this uh, to draw such a complex portrait. And I'd love I'd love your thoughts on that. Um, also, um, please jump in, Elena, if
1: you want to. Mm-hmm. But um, <coughs> oh, I don't. Okay, I just think that her dialogue is sublime. Mm. I just think it's amazing and it makes you stop and it makes you think. Like, she doesn't give great descriptions of landscapes or rooms or what people are wearing. She makes a bit of a motive out of the fact that some people wear a hat, mm. um, which sort of dates that puts it in a particular date and a particular attitude of people and how they look at <laughs> other people. Um but she says at one point when there, there's a discussion between Lydia and Flora and Simon is there and Lydia, I mean, Flora says that she's incorrigibly clean living. Mm. And Lydia quips that it isn't her fault, but rather just her karma. And then Simon says, well, if your karma isn't your fault, I don't know what it is. I thought that was the whole point. <laughs> and then Madeline St. Jean says... It depends on what you think you actually are. And Simon is silenced. And so that's one of those conversations that points him towards the fact that he's not introspective and that perhaps he isn't what he thinks he is and that his karma, the consequences, might not be what he expects. But further to that, that Lydia's picked that up and he hasn't. But it's just done with such... Brevity, and I remember reading that, and I remember reading several times. It depends on who you think you actually are. Um, oh, God, my oven's going off. And um, so I just thought that that was fascinating, and I thought it was a very, very good example of what of her shrewd mind mm. and what she can do with dialogue.
0: And, and exchanges like that, it's it's all just there. Because even a even a surface reader knows what that is. What that is involving beyond the immediate conversation, um, and I just yeah, uh, yeah, it's
1: it's, a, it's something that trips you up and makes you think, and that's I think that's the art of it. I think, and like you've mentioned a couple of times, the way she uses dialogue, it is what they what is not said, what is implied, and it has to do with ordinariness. Mm. Like people being ordinary, but it's extraordinary how, to me, the gaps are extraordinary because they just present to you um, like a, a vacancy for thought and mm. for reflection, which is what she's doing with Simon. I,
0: I don't know if either of you have this experience, but whenever I, whenever I encounter dialogue like this, um, and I think this probably goes back to, to when I was a very young reader, I was always immediately attracted to it, and I thought I'd love, I'd love to be able to cultivate. That way of talking, but of course you can't because it doesn't just involve the way you talk. It involves the way you interact mm-hmm. with people. It relies on other people, and it's so. On the one yeah. hand, it's it's a facade. It's a it, it's a actually a, a play. It's a something that we can only view because we can't just make our world like that. But I just find it so attractive where people only say what is needed and never say anything more, and um, I, I, you could you almost couldn't imagine them having small talk.
1: No, and you have, but you have to be really quick. Mm. And I haven't met anybody that's quick um, in conversation as people are generally in books. But I, but the thing I love about it is that it's a sort of a portal into Madeline St John's head mm. and her mind and how she sees things. And I find that delightful because I and I quite like her, and I would have. Like to um, have known her, but I think that going by the various bits and pieces I've read about her, that could have been a dangerous thing to know her.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> it also relies on on everyone being at their best. And one thing that does, or, or, or I saw happening in the book, as as Flora and Simon's journey deepens, Flora into um, Flora into religion and and her her journey there, and Simon into well, I guess jealousy is, is one thing that he really deepens into. Gillian, for me, somehow hollowed out. And then we, we get to a point where they're, they're no longer at their best. They're starting to fight with each other. And they're, they're, not, as, they're not as witty. And, and the fighting starts to look a little bit more like a conversation you would have when you're angry at someone, um, which felt very real to me. But I'd it it also felt like a shame. I felt in, in a way that Gillian was almost used a little bit and used poorly.
2: Yeah, I thought so too. Mm. <clears throat> I thought Gillian was her own woman actually. She's she's someone who she did not need Simon, she did not need anyone, and uh, that was kind of refreshing. She seemed to exist um on the surface and that the things that were most important to her were were, you know, getting a house, getting stocks and that kind of thing. But um, she was a woman who knew what she wanted wanted and in that certainty is a kind of freedom too.
1: Yeah, I yeah. I thought she was uh, when I mentioned used. She was used by Madeline St. Jean, She was a bit of a d- device, uh, and then I got the sense, possibly like Andrew, that she was suddenly not all that needed anymore. So she kind of faded away a bit. But I never, ha- I don't have any doubt that she's gone on to a much better, mm. more brilliant life.
0: I, I felt similarly. Yeah, I felt similarly about Lydia as well. Like in in the in the real world, which of course they don't live. They are going to have fabulous lives, um, but in insofar as they enter Simon's orbit, I I just felt they were they were used poorly. I I'd, I'd happily read um, a book that dealt with Gillian or dealt with Lydia, um, yeah. because I I wanted more for them than they they both got from their interactions with Simon. Yeah,
1: but I think they both knew that. Hmm. I mean, I think that Lydia had his measure all the while, and I don't think that Gillian ever took him. This is my. This could be my prejudice. Um, I could be sympathising with Madeline and Jen here, but I don't. I don't. Don't know if Gillian ever, Gillian ever thought that it was ever going to go very far. I think he may have served her purpose for the time being. It seemed like her life beyond him had the measure of men as well in the world that she worked and lived and um, you know what what she was pursuing in her life, and that was. Un- unearthing scoundrels
0: <laughs> ah, yes, very good, very good of course how did we how did we miss that parallel <laughs> does Does this also deal with the central theme that 's often repeated of of things being transitory, things in the world being transitory yes. it 's a conversation between Flora and Simon that constantly recurs, but it very much informs the whole nature of relationships, uh, definitely, and um,
1: I think there was a transitory nature in Simon and Flora's relationship but I think there's a series of transitions and transitory phases I think possibly that may have been something that she was indicating she being Madeline St John St John
0: Is is there anything there and this is, this is one of those moments where I take too deep a dive and you guys are going to have to pull me up from it. Is there anything there from, for the reader? Um, is there any way that the reader can look at that sort of transitory philosophy and think, as much as I love the book, as much as I love the, the hours, the days that I spend in the book, it is transitory. I have to leave this book, even though sometimes you want to, you want to sort of dive in and just inhabit that world. I've made too much of things, haven't I?
2: <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh, I think that 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 is, that's the kind of, um, the resolution of the crisis, if there is one, is is for both characters to appreciate the transitory nature of life. And it's that once you're comfortable with that and accept that as a truth, then uh, it becomes a lot easier to get by. If you accept that everything is fleeting and there is, um, uh, that that is the nature of life, then you're better able to deal with what, what comes at you.
1: Mm. And that's—I think that I agree, and I think that's proved by Flora, who comes to the conclusion that it's faith in the journey and the journey itself and the mm. search. Um, and so, I—I I think that that's—and of course that, that gets back gets back to the title, in my opinion, that it's a pure, clear light when you finally realize that. Yeah. Mm.
0: Dramatic pause, because I I, I I need to pause, because otherwise I'm going to keep coming back to the fact that I want Simon to get his comeuppance. There, I said it. Um,
1: yes. I thought that it was very clever that she used infidelity as a vehicle to ponder right, wrong, and faith, and the existence of God, and the transitory nature of living, and mm. all about love and life. Um, I thought that that was good... Uh, because she did it so beautifully and with such brevity and through such an ordinary facade. And, I mean, that's what fiction's about. Fiction's about being human beings. But I just absolutely loved and adored this book and um, I wish that I could write half as well.
0: Mm-hmm. I And I agree. The, the, the use of infidelity... The again my only drawback and i think i think this is actually a strength but for me i i can't move away from this emotion yet because i've only recently finished the book but mm. by by allowing simon to have the affair i think whereas flora is searching for spirituality and searching for god i think simon for a brief period lives in this idea that he might actually be a god-like figure. And he's, he's always in this adolescent huff that he can't have it all. He has to, he has to balance his timetable. And seeing Gillian means he, he doesn't get home in time for Thomas. Why can't he be omnipresent? And um, yeah. I, I think he becomes, at a point, so ridiculous. We can't help but uh, see him for what he is. But I still, I, yeah, I'm still emoting about, about Simon. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. Um, but he... But he gets his come up and he just mm. he gets a bit rejected by Gillian and he you know he has a he does have a bit of introspection, and I think he does because is isn't it at the end he's looking at that painting, I can't remember what the name it is, but oh, it's called hope, hope. yeah yeah yeah, and so he's pondering hope, and so I just thought that that left me feeling a whole lot better that he would perhaps understand that faith and hope are the things that were missing from his. Life and mm. uh, he would have to look at his wife and his family to see that um, they were his hope and you know they were his faith. That's mm. my uh, understanding of poor old Simon.
0: <laughs> you are tuned into 2SCR 107.3, and this is the Australian Classics Book Club. I have we are discussing Madeline St. John's A Pure Clear Light, and I have been joined today by Rosalie Hamm and Elena Gagoulis. Rosalie, Elena, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, as always, for, for helping us well discover and rediscover another classic of Australian writing.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you, Rosalie. Thank you, Elena.
0: And we've still got one hmm. more Madeline St. John booked for next year.
2: Uh, <laughs> do we really? Oh.
0: I think it's, we've done, I think it was a pure clear, well, with The Women in Black, A Pure Clear Light, uh, and yeah. last year we discussed A Stairway to Paradise. So there's still the yes. essence of the thing.
2: We've still got yeah. the essence of the thing. All oh, right, There you go. Mm. Yeah.
0: yeah.
1: Good. Book.
2: That's a, the Booker one, isn't it? The Man Booker one. That's right, yeah. Yeah. There you go.
0: Mm-hmm. That's it for this great conversation in the Australian Classics Book Club. I want to thank Elena Gugoulas and Rosalie Hamm for joining me to discuss Madeline St. John's a Pure Clear Light. Great Conversations is recorded on Gadigal Land of the Eora Nation at 2SER's Broadway Studios in Sydney, Australia. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. To keep up with the latest in books, writing, and literary culture, follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Just look for finaldraft 2SER. And when you click subscribe, you'll get a new great conversation every week. My name is Andrew Popel, and I will be back next week with more great conversations from Final Draft. Till then, happy reading.